Well, hey, Doxa, my name is David. I'm one of the guys on staff here. If you've got a Bible, pull it out. We are in Genesis, continuing this study, like a, I think it was like a year, year and a half ago, two years ago or something. We kind of worked through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and over the last, over the next months, we're going to be kind of trying to blitz through the whole rest to the very end of the book, and we're in Genesis 12. So if you've got a Bible, pull it out. Um, man, I has Christian radio music ever felt that powerful before? I don't know. I don't, I, I was like, okay, and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, that line, I just keep thinking about it. He is for you. Wow. Man, sorry, I just had a powerful moment of worship. It was just like awesome, <laughs> like to hear that just like proclaimed over and over and over and over and over again. He's for you. How awesome is that? And I think what's so cool about that is like that, that, that statement is essentially like the whole point of these chapters. <laughs> it's like God is with this, this guy named Abram and it's like this whole story of his life is just like God saying that over and over and over again saying, Abram, listen to me. I'm for you. I am for you. I am for you. I am with you. I have your back. And I think the reason that the Bible gives us stories like that or even songs to sing like that is because it is much easier to believe in God than it is to trust Him. That's kind of the, this statement I wanted to start with. It's like that, I think that's just true across the board. It is way easier to believe in God, like you believe He's real, you maybe even like kind of intellectually agree that, yep, Jesus, we, I, I believe he was God and uh, that whole cross and resurrection thing, I actually think that happened. It's, it's easier to believe that those things are true than to actually trust him with your life. Um, and we experience this in, in a, with a lot of things, right? There's, there's a difference between like experiential knowledge of something and kind of intellectual knowledge, right? And so I, I, I am a rock climber, and so one of the things that happens almost all the time for me is um, I have this intellectual knowledge that this gear that I'm placing is going to hold me, right? Like I've, I've, you look at it and it's like, okay, 27 kilonewtons. I'm like, clearly I don't weigh that. And so I'm like, I'm going to be able to like hang on this and be totally safe, right? You know this, this is like, this gear's rated for this. But there's this moment where you're like rappelling off the side of a cliff and like the higher the cliff is, like doesn't matter how many times you've done it, there's still this moment where you're like, okay, I believe this is going to hold me. But then you have to actually step off the side of the cliff and you catch yourself on the rope and you trust it. And there's a total different thing that happens because you're like, I really did believe this was going to hold me before. But as soon as it catches you and you're hanging in the air and you haven't died, you're like, okay, I actually trust it now. Like, I believe this truly to my core now, right? And you're like, okay, I feel good now. And then you can keep climbing. But there's that moment where this fork in the road of you're like, I believe this is true, but am I actually going to live my life in this position of trust? And when you actually take that step, you step off the ledge, you actually come to a greater faith in the thing you believed in in the first place. And that's what these chapters is about. Because the experience of something is a way deeper way of knowing something than merely just intellectual knowledge of it. Um, Jonathan Edwards, he has this statement. It, it's really awesome. It's in this, this letter. He has a divine and supernatural light. But this is what he says. He says, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense 
like a felt experience of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. He says there's a difference between having a rational judgment, honey is sweet, than having actually tasted and experienced its sweetness. And so this is why the Bible says things like, hey, it's not just about you believing in God in an intellectual way. The Bible says things like, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the story of Abraham that we're going to be reading, it's the story of a man who's been chosen by God. It's the story of a man who's actually put his faith in God. But it's the story of someone who still has to learn how to trust God with his whole life. And the reason I think this, this story is powerful, it's not just like history we're going to learn so you kind of know the story of the Bible. The reason this story is powerful is because if you were a Christian, this is your life as well. God has chosen you, and, and you now are a person of faith, but your relationship with God now exists in this place where you actually have to learn how to trust him, not just with a corner of your life or half of your life, but with your whole life. And so Genesis 12 through 15 we're going to do four chapters. We're going to blitz through this, okay? But it's a, it's a story that kind of has three movements, okay? Three movements, three chapters, let's say. And, and last week was like the introduction, right? We learned about this guy named Abram. And just by the way, I am going to probably say Abraham this whole sermon because I cannot figure out how to say Abram. Abraham is so wired in my brain. So those two names, right? Abram will eventually become Abraham. If I say Abraham, we're talking about the same guy. I just, I literally tried in my notes, say Abram. I can't do it. I will say Abraham. Okay. Last week, we learned about who this guy was and what happened to set his life in this direction. And what we find out is that this guy starts life as a nobody. He's just a dude who lives in this town. He's far from God, nothing special about him, and yet God meets him. And out of every single other human being on planet Earth, God comes down and chooses to unite himself with him. And he promises to bless him, right? And he has this, this is last week, he says, he says, go. He says, go to the land, I will show you. And then he, he does. He like, just, okay, like I will go. He eventually ends up at this place called Bethel in the land of Canaan. And he builds an altar and he worships God there. And he's like living this new way of life. And so in case you missed last week, go back. Rob taught, it was awesome, listen to it. That's like the introduction. But now we're gonna get into like chapter one of his story with God, okay? And this is like as he first starts this relationship. Read with me chapter 12, verse 10, okay? Just the first half. This is how this journey starts. Now there was a famine in the land. <laughs> All right, well, let's just stop there. Just re read that. Just sit and think about it for just a second. He goes. He, he gets there. First thing that happens now, there was a famine in the land, okay? It's like, Abraham, leave your family, leave your place of safety, of refuge, leave your village, and I, I promise I'm going to bless you, make your name great, make you into a great nation. He goes, okay, God, and he goes, very first chapter following God, famine, right? Like, sometimes you choose fasting, sometimes it chooses you, okay? Like, this dude is hungry, now listen, we have, we have four chapters to get through. We can't, you could do a whole sermon on this. And honestly, I feel frustrated that I broke up the text this way. I'm like, we should have taken longer to get through Genesis. A couple of just really simple observations on this, okay? Following God is not a decision that you make once. It is a path that you walk. Okay, see, the question for Abraham wasn't whether he set out on the journey to follow God in faith. The question over his life is, who will he be today? 
Will he be a man of faith or not? Will he walk with God? Will he trust God or will he not? And it wasn't a one-time decision he had to make, but he was actually given a relationship with God, a relationship with God that was meant to be defined by trust, a relationship with God that he was meant to trust his whole life to. And so he starts his journey with a fork in the road, right? God gives him a command. He says, hey, go. And so in this moment, he could either trust God and obey or he could disobey and not trust God. Mutually exclusive things, right? But he trusts God. He believes in his promise, and so he goes. And what happened was in that moment, he became a man of faith. But listen, God's goal was not just to get Abraham to move. That wasn't his goal. God's goal was to get Abram to trust him with his whole life with his whole life. And so the very next chapters of his story, famine. You see, Abraham had given God a part of his heart, and he really had trusted him with quite a lot. Like, we can look at the first chapter of that uh, introduction and say, my goodness, what a tremendous example of faith. Like, he leaves everything he knows and goes with God. And things are going well. Like he's got it all, he has this beautiful life, he's calling on the name of the Lord, he has this relationship, things are going very well, he's enjoying life with God, but then God brings another fork into the road of his life. Abraham had been enjoying life with God, but it was time for him to learn to trust God at a deeper level. And so, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, I just want to notice something, okay? Something came into Abraham's life that would either force him to learn how to trust God at an even deeper level, or it would force him to set out on a different path away from the promises of God to try to find safety in something or someone else. Like, that's what happened when this famine came into his life, because he was forced to either cling closer to God or he would have to actually let go of God slightly in order to try to find safety and refuge in something else. So what happened with this famine was staying who he was, where he was, was no longer an option. Movement had to happen in some direction, towards God or away from him. And in your life with God, listen, staying where you are is not an option either. It's not. Because see, you've chosen to follow God. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, you, you've united yourself to Jesus Christ through faith. You, you follow a God who is not just planned, but he's actually promised to restore, renovate, and cultivate every single corner of your heart and soul. And he doesn't want part of you, he wants all of you. And listen, you have to understand that. You have to know that. Because at every step of your journey with Jesus, you are going to find yourself facing these forks in the road. And they're often not just these simple decisions, but they're often moments of fear, like really serious insecurity and often even pain. Because they require a level of faith and trust that you don't have yet. And you can't just breeze through them on like the old faith you had because your faith is not enough to get you through this. You actually have to kind of get more faith. Like the whole point of this season of your life is you to learn to actually trust God more than you currently do. And so these moments force us either to lean, to learn how to trust God with even more of our hearts or turn away from God and try to find something else we can trust in. 
Let's just pause for a moment and just bring this to our, our life. Do you have a fork in your life right now like this? There is some decision you are trying to make, something that God has put in your path that you are wrestling with God about. And maybe this something is coming to your life. Maybe it's a big thing or a small thing, but there are like two options. And maybe you're even like worried about this. You're stressed about this. And you know that one option, one decision, one path leads you to greater trust in God. And that path even seems scarier because you look at that and you're like, yeah, but what if that, what if he doesn't provide? What, that's like a scary path to walk, throwing all of your life on God. But you know that one of these decisions leads to greater trust. And the other decision, maybe even slightly, but it leads you to put your trust in something else. The other path isn't one of God's provision, but it's one that even just slightly, but it's you create your own safety instead of waiting on the Lord to provide it for you. And you see, when famine comes into Abraham's life, what he does is he leaves the land God sent him to, and he goes to Egypt. Now, just real quick, a note on just reading the Bible. The Bible, the authors of the Bible, they expect us to spend time in the text. They, they expect us to kind of chew on it and, and read it slowly and ask questions. It normally isn't just going to come out and say, hey, Abram did what he wasn't supposed to do, right? It's actually pretty advanced literature. Like, it expects you to be smart, and it kind of like, it looks at you and it says, hey, you're actually pretty smart, and I want you to ask real deep questions of this. And so it doesn't just come out and say, hey, he did what he's not supposed to do, but it kind of leaves you these breadcrumbs, Right? Notice Abram never asks God what he should do. He never kind of consults God at all. And even when he goes to Egypt, he doesn't build an altar there like in Bethel. There isn't this kind of like posture of like seeking God. He makes this journey in a different state of mind. And so there's this problem. And instead of going to God as his safety and refuge, he goes to Egypt. And listen, we might think this is not that big of a deal. It's like, dude, there's no food there. <laughs> like, the dude just needs a sandwich. Like, he's going to come back at some point. He just needs to kind of take a break for a moment and figure out a way to get through this difficult situation. But listen, when you start to leave the path that God has called you to walk, even slightly, you are stepping onto a different path that will cost you something. And even though you take that path because it seems like it's the way to safety, it will always cost you something more precious than the path that God had you on. And the further you walk your own path in self-reliance to try to find safety on your own, the more that your righteousness will actually be compromised on that path. Finding safety on that path will actually cost you your honor your relationship with God, the further you walk it, because you're walking away from God's provision to find it on your own. And this is exactly what happens with Abram. This is actually a really sad part of the story. He goes out in the world to try to find an answer to his circumstances instead of looking at the abundance of God. And it leads him into a situation where he will do something that will leave a scar on his family for the entire rest of their lives. And so let's, let's see what happens in verse 11. Now, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, hey, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And, and when the Egyptians see you, they're going to say, this is his wife. And, and then they're going to they're gonna kill me, but then they will let you live. So, so this is what we're going to do. Verse 13, it says, say you are my sister, 
that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Basically, the Old Testament way of just saying the dude became very wealthy and loaded, okay? (laughs) I want to just help us understand what happened here. Abraham has essentially sold his wife to Pharaoh to be his wife so that he can live. There's this transition that happens where he starts his life believing in the promises of God, but, but now because of this new situation, he's actually moved away from believing in the promises of God, and he's moved into this kind of scarcity mentality, like there's not enough food for me, there's not enough safety for me, and so I have to figure out a way to become safe and create safety. I need to figure out a way to survive. I don't have enough. I am in danger. Faith has been replaced with fear, and so he starts to do things he thought he would never do, surely, when he married Sarah. And listen, I don't think he did this because like, this is part of my plan. I think he did this because he was really scared, and he thinks he has to to survive. And I just want to, just for a moment, I just want to speak to the men in the room. If you are someone who is leading a household, your failure to trust in God does not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. And you see, what is happening is that as Abraham leaves the God who's providing for him, and he starts to try to provide for himself, and even try to provide for his family, he ends up placing a weight on his shoulders that was never his to bear. And he can't carry it. It's too much because the role he's putting on his shoulders as provider and protector of everyone and everything is actually a, God, is a role that only God was meant to have in his life. And he immediately finds that the only way he can actually feel safe and feel secure on this other path he's taken is to start to sacrifice the people that he cares most about. And I think we need to look at this and we, we should be able to condemn it completely It's unbelievably cowardly. It honestly is pathetic, but I also think that many of us do this today. Now, we don't have, like, this thing where we literally, like, take our children and our kids and, like, literally sacrifice them to other people or other gods in the Old Testament, but how many of us in the room do we spend less time with our spouse or less time with our children than we should in the name for providing for our family? I mean, our whole country is filled with marriages and kids who are laid on the altar of this every day. And and our excuse is, but I have to do this. I have to, if I don't work this many hours in a week, and if I don't reach the top of this thing, then I cannot be who God wants me to be in my family as provider and protector. And we think we have no choice, but listen, in this world, you will either find refuge in something or someone that promises you safety as long as you sacrifice enough to it. Or you will find refuge in the one who has already paid the cost of that sacrifice on your behalf. There's only two options. You will be the one to sacrifice to find safety or God will be the one who sacrifices to give you safety. And those are the only two paths to walk 
And so Abraham and Sarah, they find themselves on this path where they are the ones who are making the biggest sacrifice. And it is a miserable place. Their marriage is ruined. (laughs) Sarah is like basically sold into some kind of like marriage slavery to the Pharaoh. They're far from God once again. And what happens next is awesome (laughs) because they're just at like rock bottom. Like Abraham's like, I know I've been given money and resources, but my life stinks. This is horrible. And God comes to their rescue without them even asking him to. It's so awesome. (laughs) Like, they're so far from God, they're not even like, we should really cry out to him to help us. They're so far from God, they don't even do that. But God has promised to bless Abraham. And so he comes after him, and look what happens in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my own wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so in this moment, we just need to recognize God is awesome, all right? Like we have a God who comes after us even when we are making a foolish decision and have buried ourselves under a mountain of our own incompetence and idiocy. Like, how many of us have been there at some point in our life where we're like, my life is horrible. It is entirely my fault. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, God meets you in that broken place and fights on your behalf. And what's so awesome is that as God rescues Abraham, he has this change of heart. You see, it's in the love and it's in the care of God for him, despite his lack of faith, that actually draws him to an even greater place of trust than he had before. And what happens is that he goes home. He leaves Egypt, he comes back to God, he leaves the refuge of this world to go back into the wilderness with God. He journeys through this huge section of desert and eventually finds himself back where he started at Bethel. And this is where we pick the story up in chapter 13, verse two. It says that now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev, this, this kind of desert wilderness area. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. I think if we were going to like title this first chapter of his life with God, I think you would just call it like, Abraham's foolishness and God's providence. It's like Abraham is so dumb in this moment. We can be honest about that because we're like him, right? We're not punching down. We're punching right next to us, right? It's like we are right there with him. Abraham's foolishness and God's providence, even when we wander, we have a God who comes after us. Do you know how amazing it is to serve a God like that? Even when we fail, we have a God who fights for us. And even when we find ourselves buried under a mountain of our own foolishness, not only does God give us a way out, but he always gives us a way back home. And as I was, as I was preparing this message, I just felt that there were going to be some of you in the room today And the reason you're here is because you've wandered far from the place God first called you to. Like you've wandered far from home and you need to come home. You need to come home. And I just need you to hear, listen to me. 
I know that you're probably in a place where you're like, you don't know how far I've wandered from God. Like, you don't know the path. You don't know where I've been, the things I've done. Listen, you did not earn God's love for you in the first place, which means you can't lose it now either. And I just want to invite you, come home. He's fighting for you. He cares for you. Come home like Abram. Come home. That is chapter one, but look at what happens in chapter two. This chapter, this next movement of the story has a totally different home, or a different tone. Because even though Abram's journey hasn't been like as straight as it could be, right? Like he's had some wandering and God kind of comes and brings him back onto the right path. He comes back as someone who has grown. And what's so awesome is he isn't just now a man of faith who believes in the promises of God, but he's a man who's actually experienced the goodness of God. He, he watched God be there for him even when he had walked away from him. And so this chapter isn't a chapter of failure. This chapter is one of faith, and it is awesome. So read verse, chapter 13, verse 5. This is kind of the next movement in the story. And it says this. Now Lot, who, who's kind of, you're going to see these two people together for a lot of the rest of the story here. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Okay, so this issue comes up, right? Not nearly as severe as a famine, but there's this issue, right? They are too prosperous to share the same area, right? It's like we have so many cattle and sheep that they're eating all of the food, <laughs> all of like the land, there's, like, there's too much blessing. And so what we need to do is we need to spread ourselves out, take different areas. And what's so awesome is that Abram, now that he's had this experience with God, he's not operating from a place of scarcity anymore. But because he's trusting the Lord, he's operating from a place of abundance. And people who live like this, they bring peace into the world. And so he says this, hey, Lot, there's this issue going on. There's not enough resources for us right here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to split up. And so you, you look around, and you kind of figure out which direction you want to go. And so just real quick, we're not going to read all this. There is one direction that clearly looks better, right? It's like there's one that's like well-watered, looks like the Garden of Eden, like wonderful. And then there's nothing said about the other part, right? And if you've ever been to Israel, you're like, yep, some areas are nice, some areas are not. And this is what he says. He goes, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to split up. If you pick left, I'll go right. If you pick right, I will go left. Whatever way looks more prosperous, you pick that and I'll pick the other. How awesome is that? What a change of tone from I need to fight for my own way to be safe. I need to fight for refuge myself. He is learning how to trust God. He's learning how to trust God. And he says, I don't, I don't need to live in the area that looks more prosperous. I don't need to try to grab hold and control my destiny or fight for the best place because God is for me. And he's leading my life. And because of that, I have all that I need, whether I am in that corner of the world, this seems really prosperous, and there's a bunch of water there, or whether I am in the desert. One of the ways that you can tell whether you are living a life connected with God, experiencing his presence, trusting him, or you're just someone who has knowledge of him, is about how you view the world. Do you view the world as a place of scarcity or abundance? Do you view your life as one of peace 
and safety or one of like fear and insecurity? Do you, you view your life as one where you're like, my life is, I have all that I need. I am safe. I experience abundance. Or are you someone who experiences scarcity? And how you answer that will actually be a great litmus test of how much you are walking in trust with God versus just knowing things about him. And so this dynamic starts to play out between Abraham and Lot. Abraham is drawn away from the refuge of the world to live in tents in the wilderness with God. And Lot starts to move away from the provision of God towards these cities that promise so much. But the Bible tells us that these cities, even though they look to the eye like these beautiful, wonderful places, they're actually places that God calls wicked and evil because of the things that are happening in there. And these, the, the, Lot, Lot moves towards these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to come up later. They're famous cities in the Bible. But listen, Abraham is met by peace, blessing, and the promise of God. And Lot, as he moves towards these cities, is met with war. Now, this is how chapter 14 starts, okay? This, look, just, man, we'll... We'll read a few, a few of these lines, okay? This is like some of the gnarliest like, list of names and places in the Bible. Like if you want to get really tripped up in connection group, man, go to Genesis 14, all right? We'll, just, we'll read a little bit of them. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedorlomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, We'll just skip ahead. In the 14th year, Chedorlaam and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuziz in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathaim. All right, we're done. The, if you want to have a great connection group, everyone take 20 bucks, throw it in the middle, and whoever can get through the, all that list without stumbling, man, you get the whole pot. I think someone should do that. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. Gambling, I don't know how you guys feel about it. Maybe you shouldn't do it. Anyway. Here's the cliff notes, all right, of what happens in this section, all right? The kings of the west, in this whole area that Abram's in, the kings of the west go to war with the kings of the east because they don't want to live under their rule anymore. And there's this massive kind of battle across the whole land in the Valley of Sidim, and apparently this Valley of Sidim is like Mordor, okay? Like the name sounds like Lord of the Rings, the battle's like Lord of the Rings. There's these bitumen pits everywhere, which is like a tar pit, and people are fighting and being sucked into these pits, into the earth. It is a crazy, crazy scene. And so these kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, this, these cities where Lot has chosen to place residence in, they are on the run. They are being defeated. They flee into the hills, and their cities are left with no defenses. And so these other kings come and ransack the cities. And so Lot and his whole family and everything he owns is carried off as like bounty. And so there's this massive war. I mean, it's like massive war. And these more powerful kings won, and they're going to take home with their spoils, Lot, his family, and everything he owns. And Abraham hears about this. One person escapes the battle, tells Abram. Now, you would expect what Abraham would do is what people do when horrible things happen in the Old Testament. You tear your clothes, you weep, and you lament because it's all that can be done. Abram doesn't do that. This is awesome. <laughs> he is not living a life of fear. He's living a life of faith. So he's like, boys, let's go. He gets his dudes. I, I wish I could have. That would have been so much better if I could have actually made the, the whistle thing. Abraham could probably do it. I can't. But he gets his guys, all right? And he's like, we are going after them. 
You're like, really? Uh, all the kings have just wiped out all the other kings? We're going to go hunt them? He's like, yes, we are. Check it out. Verse 13, chapter 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them back to Hobah, north of Damascus, and then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. I mean, how, this is awesome. Like, you could spend a whole sermon just talking about how awesome this moment is, where he is not a man of fear, he's a man of faith. He's like, look, at, look listen, I've seen God miraculously provide for me when I was living like an idiot. Surely if I go out into the world and try to actually do something that's honorable and worthy of my life, God will also be with me. He met my foolishness with providence. He's gonna meet my courageous ambition with power as well. Isn't this an awesome picture of life, Faith? I just love it. It's like you have like tremendous failure and tremendous courage like just mixed together into some of the near chapters. Isn't that like our life? And isn't this an awesome picture of God? It's like when we are foolish, his power is enough to cover that. And when we're courageous, he meets us in those moments. Now look at the way this, this chapter ends. This is chapter 14, verse 17. And I'll read it closely, okay? Because it's kind of clunky, but there's some stuff here we need to see. After his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, okay, the place where Lot is living, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, this is a new guy introduced in the story. He's not one of the kings in this battle. He's just a new guy. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom, now it's his turn, he said to Abram, uh, give me the, the people back, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, now listen, I've lifted my hand to God. I basically made this promise to God, the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. This scene where Abraham is standing kind of victorious in this valley, two different kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom and this, this interesting guy named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And there's some stuff that gets lost on us when we read quickly, but I just want to slow down the story and just have you notice what the author's trying to help us see. We've already been told what, what Sodom's like. It's a city that, that's wicked. And actually, this king's name, his name is Berach. And, and it, it's, in Hebrew, it literally just sounds like son of evil. So there's this like evil king from this wicked city. But then there's Melchizedek, and his name means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem, which means peace. And it says that he's a priest of the most high God. Now Melchizedek, what he comes, and he offers just two things. <laughs> he's like, hey, 
here's some bread and wine. First of all, that should prick our ears a little bit. Hmm, interesting. I'm going to bring some bread and wine and a blessing from God. And at the same time, this is going to kind of cost you something. I'm going to accept this, this tribute from you, 10%. But the king of Sodom doesn't require anything. Instead, he actually just offers to give Abram everything. Here's all the spoils. Here you go. Now listen, one of these kings comes and offers him something that has no earthly value except that of faith. Like the path of faith, all the value in the world, the path of the world, no value. It's bread. It's wine. It's a blessing. But this other king comes, and, and he offers them something that is like all the blessing of the world, all this material wealth, and it costs him nothing by the world's standards. The only thing it costs him is something that has to do with faith. And what Abraham says is, give me the bread and the wine, keep the stuff. Give me that. That's what I want. And he has this conversation with the king of Sodom. He says, look, I know that by taking this, I would actually be receiving some of the very things God promised to give me. He told me he'd give me blessing. He told me that. And, but listen, I would not be receiving them by his hand. I'd be receiving them by your hand. And while that might be coming to me free of charge, it would cost me the experience of God providing for me and fulfilling his promises to me in his own way. And I would rather have that. So here, you take the spoils. I don't need them. I have God. Divvy them up amongst your people. Have you ever made a choice like that? Where you have the promise of God. God's like, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to bless you in this way. And there are two ways to get that. One is the way of the world, and the other is the way of faith. And the way of the world is just held out to you. You can have it right now. Just don't trust in God for it. Just take it. Have you ever actually made that radical of a decision where you go, you know what, I'm actually going to say no to what the world's offering me today so I can take the longer path of faith so I can actually experience God fulfilling his promises for me to give me that in the end. That's what Abram decides to do. Because he's, he's walked with God and he's experienced that. And he's like, I actually want that more than I want the blessing. <laughs> I want God. It's an amazing moment of faith. But, but listen, it's not a faith without questioning. It's not a faith without doubts. It's, it's, it is trust, but it's a trust that comes with questions. Uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to summarize the next chapter, but chapter 15 is this moment where God comes back to Abram and starts speaking to him again. So we'll read a couple of verses here. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham, Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? Because <laughs> I, I continued childless, and the heir of my house is, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household is going to be my heir. And, and then in verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And what happens in the rest of this chapter is amazing because God takes Abram out of the tent he's praying in and he brings him outside into the wilderness. And he, he has him stand at the edge of camp. 
it's dark, it's like this, you know, they're in the desert, dark night sky, and he's like, Abraham, I want you to look up. And so Abraham is standing there, he looks up at the sky, and he sees all the stars, and he says, hey, I want you to count the stars, Abram, if you can. Your descendants are going to be like that. And it's like this really powerful moment, right? Because you just like, just put yourself in there, just feel it for a moment. Like it's dark. <laughs> you can like feel the, the cool breeze of the desert. You're standing out there experiencing the presence of God. And he's like pointing at something that is like marvelous and glorious that he made. <laughs> he's like, hey, I, I made that. You see the stars? You don't even really understand this. You're pretty like, you're, you're going to figure out like through telescopes and science, there's a lot more of these than you can even see eventually someday. I made all that. And I'm telling you, I'm the one promising that I will make this happen. And it says that in that moment, as Abraham is having this moment with God, it says he believed and God counted to him as righteousness. But then he continues on. He says, Abraham, not only am I going to do that, but also all this land you're standing on, I'm going to give it to your descendant. It's going to be yours. And it's like as the promises build and build, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like you're like, I believe that to be true but I want to believe it deeper. <laughs> I want to know it. And so what Abram says is amazing. He's like, listen, I believe that. I believe, but how can I know? How can I know that's going to happen? How can I know to the very depth of my being that these promises will be fulfilled? And what God does is amazing because he doesn't just say, hey, Abram, look back to your story. I was there for you even when you ran from me. He doesn't say, hey, remember that huge battle that you should not have won and I was there for you? He doesn't do that. What he says is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and go get some animals and I want you to bring them to me. And so Abram goes and he gets, the, he gets, a, he gets a bull, he gets a, he gets a lamb, he gets a goat. He brings them before God and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut these animals right in half through the center of their body. And so he cuts these animals in half and God says, okay, I want you to lay one side here and the other side here and I want you to make a path of these cut in half animals. And as God is telling Abram to do this, what happens is honestly pretty amazing. The light starts to get lower and lower, and it says that a deep sleep fell on Abram. A deep sleep falls over Abraham, and he's in this sleepy haze, and, and God once again, in the middle of this kind of scene, this ritual thing that's happening here, God once again renews his promise and says, Abram, this will happen. No, this will happen. And then you get to verse 17 of chapter 15, and this is all it says. This is the whole ceremony. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's it. That is the whole ceremony. Abram cuts his animals in half. He falls asleep. God makes them promises and his presentation of his spirit passes between these pieces that is the covenant now really quick that is so stinking strange is it not <laughs> like is that not really strange okay it's a weird scene but it's even weirder if you know what should happen because this is a normal covenant between parties in ancient days and people knew what would happen. Essentially, it was this symbolic oath you would take with someone else and you'd say, hey, we are gonna join together. There's both gonna be this kind of, I'm gonna do this, you're gonna do this. And then you cut these animals in half and you basically say, hey, if I don't keep my side of the bargain, may I be cut in two like these animals. And two things would happen. 
Either both parties would basically both walk through like this, side by side, both walking this path, making this agreement, or what would normally happen is if one person had a higher status of honor, that person would not walk through. If there's a king and a servant, only the servant would walk through. And so what should happen is that as God and Abram make this covenant together, Abram would be the one who would walk through these animals. Abram would be the one who would take the position of the servant. Abram would be the one whose life would be on the line. But that's not what happens. And it's amazing. Because God answers Abram's questions, how can I know? How can I know with absolute certainty that you're going to keep your promises to me, that you're trustworthy, that I can actually give you my entire life? How can I know that is worth it? And God's answer is because the covenant I'm making with you, Abram, it is a one-sided covenant. I will bless you. I promise that I will do these things. I will love you faithfully and I will uphold my side of this covenant even at the cost of my own life. And Abram, even if you fail to uphold your side of this, if you fail to obey me, if you're the one that breaks this covenant, I will be the one that pays the cost of that failure. Abram, your love for me, it is small, it is weak. We have already seen that play out in your story. If you had something to do with this, this whole thing would be ruined. But my love for you is strong enough to stand in the gap for both of us. And so as God covenants himself to this man, Abram is asleep on the side. And God's spirit enacts what one day God's son will do. Where God himself, who's promised to bless broken people like us, would go to the cross and would say, I will uphold my promises to you. And even when you fail, I will keep my side of the bargain because my love for you is that strong. And eventually Jesus will walk with his father to the cross and he will pay the cost of our failure. And there's this moment in the story, right, where Melchizedek, man, he brings out bread and wine to Abraham. And it's like, you don't, it's like, this is like just foreshadowing of this thing where it's like Abraham's in this moment. He's like, dude, how is it that you are a God who is like so faithful to me that even when I run from you, you come after me? How is it possible that you would love someone like that? Or even like, how is it possible that I go and do this like crazy thing and, and you show up in this battle and, and you're there for me? How is that possible? And it's like God, the answer is to have this dude come out and serve him bread and wine. And it's like, hey, actually, Abram, like thousands of years from now, all your descendants that I promised, they're going to basically share that same meal. And this meal is basically going to be a reminder that actually the way that God joins himself to broken people the way that God can love people faithfully and keep his promises to people who are not able to keep their promises to him, is they're going to share a meal regularly that will remind them how that's possible. That God himself would pay the cost of that failure. And so in communion, we just remember the cross of Jesus Christ. That on the cross, God is 
he's paying with his life the cost of our failure so that he can uphold his promises to us. And so I want to just give you a moment as we start to worship together. Just sometime during worship, I want you to just come (laughs) to God with all of your failures, all the ways that you have failed to obey him faithfully. And I want you to just let him in this moment as we take the bread that represents his body that was broken for us, we take the cup that represents his blood that was poured out for us. I want you to just meet God in this bread and wine meal and say, Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you for joining yourself to me in a way that cannot be broken promising things to me that will come true despite my failure. And thank you for paying the cost to make that happen. And so I'm going to pray for us and then on our own, we can kind of take communion during worship. Jesus Christ, we love you. And God, we are people whose lives are not marked by faithfulness, but they're marked by failure. But you are a God whose love is strong enough and faithful enough to stand in the gap for us. Thank you that you're that kind of God because it's the only kind of God that would be able to stay in a relationship with people like us. Would you help us worship you this morning? In your name.